American National is proud to support No Ceiling, the stories of women and their journey to the C-suite. American National is dedicated to providing paths for leadership advancement through the Women's Forum, a group of female leaders who provide encouragement, mentorship, and advocacy for American National female employees. With four corporate locations in Galveston and League City, Texas, Albany, New York, and Springfield, Missouri, the opportunities for leadership advancement are vast. American National believes taking care of business starts with taking care of its employees. Komen is really interested in the big data space. So, you know, one thing that's become really clear over the last several decades is, you know, one, breast cancer isn't one disease, so it's a lot of diseases, but then it's also every person's breast cancer is unique, and that's based on their biology and their lived experience. Um, So one thing that's really important is getting as much um, kind of different types of data from different people, basically to make better predictions about, you know, who might benefit from a certain treatment so that people are getting the best possible care for them as an individual. Today's guest is Alex Irwin. She's the manager of scientific programs at Susan G. Komen. Her work involves bringing together industry leaders and patient voices to identify gaps in breast cancer research and needs in patient care. She moved back to the Springfield area after the birth of her daughter to be closer to family, and she says she benefited from a post-pandemic shift to remote work that made the job at the national nonprofit Komen possible. In this conversation, Alex talks about the impact of her mother's breast cancer diagnosis on her work, and how immigrating to the U.S. from Russia as a child with her single mom has shaped her perspective and identity. From SBJ Podcasts, I'm Christine Temple, and this is No Ceiling a show that goes in-depth with local women, sharing their journey to the top of their professions and the challenges and triumphs they faced along the way. They're rewriting the script on success, and there's no ceiling. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So um, you lead the scientific programs and the research efforts for breast cancer at Susan G. Komen. And I wonder if you could just start by telling us what does your work entail? Yeah, definitely. So we work really kind of collaboratively across Komen. um, And one of the things that we do is bring the kind of leaders in the research field and the patient voice together to try and identify gaps in the breast cancer field and also try and immediate uh, identify immediate needs that can help the breast cancer community. Hmm. So then what are some of the like projects that you're working on right now or have recently completed? Yeah, so I think one of the really great things is, um, you know, we don't do things alone, so we work a lot with other organizations. Um, And so I think one really great example of a project on our team that kind of um, leverages the patient voice and collaboration is our work around inflammatory breast cancer. Mm. Um, So this is a aggressive breast cancer that doesn't really show a lot of the typical signs you think of with breast cancer. So a lot of times there is no lump and it really looks more like a skin infection. Mm. And so, you know, kind of that presentation combined with the fact that women are more likely to be younger when they're diagnosed just means a lot of times, you know, breast cancer isn't on the radar. Um, So it gets misdiagnosed or missed a lot. And, you know, that's something that we heard from patients as well as, you know, just how hard it was to get that correct diagnosis. 
Um, and it's really critical because it's also an aggressive cancer. So by the time you're seeing the symptoms, um, it's already in a, at an advanced stage. And so it's wow. really critical to get you know the right treatment as soon as possible. Um, so one of the things that Coleman did was, along with our nonprofit partners, we convened um, experts in the inflammatory breast cancer space, along with patient advocates, to really figure out, you know, what is the the thing that would have the greatest impact for patients? Um, and the answer was a resounding, like, we need a better way to diagnose this, you know, more consistently and more accurately, because the approach, you know, for diagnosing this breast cancer really hadn't changed for decades. Hmm. So um, our group worked collaboratively to come up with a proposed new diagnostic scoring system, so a new way to diagnose this, um, and that was published. And then we also funded two of the leading inflammatory breast cancer centers in the world to validate the scoring system. And then one of the other things um, our team did was, you know, since the scoring system in the publication was pretty cumbersome to use, so like a clinician would have to find the article, they'd have to tally up the scores um, to kind of get to that um, to help them in their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to make this more accessible so that, you know, clinicians and physicians, no matter where they were in the country, kind of had the same access to these criteria that mm -hmm. the leading um, centers were using. So we worked uh, collaboratively within Komen and with our partners to develop an online version of this tool. So now providers can, you know, have it in hand in the clinic while they're seeing patients to hopefully aid them in that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Wow. So when did this come out, and, and do you follow up with tracking to see about, you know, success and how that's working and following up with clinicians to ask about the process? Yeah, definitely. So we launched the online version of the scoring system last fall, mm -hmm. um, and so we do have um, surveys as part of that scoring system, and we're actively gathering feedback from the community, especially, um, you know, tied to kind of the refinement of that score as well that's happening um, mm -hmm. in the grant that we we're funding. Mm -hmm. So um, what made you want to get into the field of science? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I had always been really interested in science, um, but I really, I think a lot of, like a lot of people owe it to really great educators. So, you know, even in our community, I had great um, high school teachers at Willard and at Missouri State. And I think one thing that really um, kind of tied things together was that they would give us really ambitious projects to work on. And I think just kind of their, um, them entrusting us to try and, you know, figure out these big problems, I think also gave us permission to think more ambitiously, like, you know, maybe we could help um, address some of the kind of critical needs and unsolved problems in science. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, what degree path did you pursue? And did you have a sense of like what you wanted to do with that degree before you started? curious that career journey. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, so I got my undergrad at Missouri State. So I was doing biology and microbiology. Um, I was fortunate to get to work in undergraduate research labs where I got really interested in genetics um, and wanted to kind of continue um, pursuing that path. Mm -hmm. So then I went and got a PhD at the University of Kansas that was still focused on kind of genetics and mechanisms of aging. Um, but while I was in kind of doing that lab work, I, you know, really felt like I was missing that connection to the community. So really wanting to do things that were kind of impacting science and the community more broadly. 
Um, so I became really interested in things like, you know, how do we make, um, you know, what's needed to have a scientific ecosystem? Like mm-hmm. what helps drive innovation? Um, how do we make the field, you know, more inclusive and equitable? How do we ensure that discoveries benefit more people? Um, and so that really ultimately led me to kind of working more in the nonprofit space because that's um, an area where you can really work um, across sectors. So like working with academia and industry and government to kind of help drive change and move science forward in that way. Mm-hmm. So then what was your first role out of college? Yeah, so after my PhD, mm-hmm. I went to a nonprofit in the Kansas City region. Mm-hmm. So it was a bioscience nonprofit. It was kind of like a chamber of commerce and an industry trade organization for the biosciences. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were really focused on strengthening the bioscience sector in Kansas and the Kansas City region. Um, and so there, um, based on some of the work I had done as a graduate student with some grassroots programs that I developed, there was a position created for me to um, really focus more on education and training and workforce initiatives. Um, so trying to, to, to better train PhD and early career scientists kind of for fulfilling roles in the biosciences, um, especially since there really is a lack of awareness of all the things that you can do with a scientific degree and the different ways that you can contribute. So I was really, I was developing a lot of programs to help kind of retain Mm -hmm. um, scientists in the Midwest and then also support them through their professional career journeys. That's an interesting point of maintaining them in the Midwest, because I imagine there's maybe more opportunities in larger cities, perhaps on the coasts. Um, And also, I'm curious, too, about um, science and academia, because is that kind of like the path that people think of when they get their Ph.D. in science? And so it sounds like you were trying to expand horizons. Yeah, definitely. And that's, um, you know, it's certainly true. I think most of you know, myself and my colleagues, we were very aware of the big, you know, bioscience hubs and like San Francisco okay. and Boston. And, you know, I think a lot of the assumption was that you'd have to move to um, pursue a scientific career, whether that was in academia or industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people like myself, you know, really loved the Midwest and wanted to stay here and have careers here. So it really was this question of what are the opportunities here? Um, And so that was one of the kind of needs that I saw and worked with, um, worked with other students at the University of Kansas to develop, you know, a career symposium where people did get to see kind of all the different ways that they could participate in science in the Midwest in different ways and use their skill sets. So then um, what was the journey to get to Komen? Because I think that coincided a couple years ago with a move also to back to the Springfield area. Yeah, so um, I had my daughter in 2021, so it was like peak COVID time, Um, and this was when, you know, I was working at that nonprofit, Um, and so it was, you know, I think having a newborn is hard no matter, you know, when or what the circumstances are, but I think especially in COVID, just being so isolated from support structures, um, you know, so like our families were here. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't like I could even go see my coworkers or my friends and, you know, have them meet the baby. So there was just I think there's a lot of different levels of kind of isolation that you experience mm-hmm. along with just the isolation of being a new parent. 
Um, and, you know, my husband was fantastic and, you know, he was really great and supportive, but we still just really needed more of that support structure. So it really, I think for a long time we had wanted to move back, but it was kind of, it didn't ever feel like the right time. And I think our daughter really gave us that opportunity where it was, you know, it really did feel like the right time. And, you know, I feel like for a lot of things I overthink and I like to plan, Mm. but we decided to move back here within like a 30 minute walk that we took, (laughs) um, you know, with our daughter. And then I think we were back here within a month after making that decision. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but Springfield is not maybe known as a bioscience hub, um, maybe even less so than the Kansas City area is my guess. Um, so then when you're moving here, did you have a sense of what role you'd be able to take on in that 30 minute walk? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was one of the parts that was a little bit, you know, scarier and more unsure was I wasn't sure, you know, what opportunities there would be. And I knew at that time I still really loved the nonprofit space and I wanted to work somewhere that was, you know, contributing, um, you know, using my scientific skill set to contribute to communities and, um, and advanced science. So I started looking at remote opportunities um, and I had a colleague who worked at Komen and kind of wanted to learn more. And mm-hmm. the more I learned about Komen and what they were doing kind of across all of these different areas in the community, you know, I really fell in love with the organization and the people. And so it ended up being a really fantastic fit. So um, they're obviously not based in Springfield. So that's, this is a remote company yes. now. How does that work um, in the in the scientific research community to be remote? Because I imagine you have colleagues all over. Yeah. So, right. So Komen went fully remote um, a few years ago. And I think because it was such a deliberate, like a deliberate and intentional decision, they really did a great job building a lot of great remote culture. Um, So it does not really feel like we're isolated from one another. There's a lot of constant contact. Um, I think the organization as a whole has done a really great job with, um, you know, ensuring there's constant communication, like we're always getting different leadership updates and updates from different groups. Um, And then, you know, at the same time, I think one thing that they do really well is just constantly making sure that people feel heard. So doing a lot of employee engagement um, surveys and then quickly, you know, acting to like address the needs that that people are looking for. So just really prioritizing flexibility and all of the Mm -hmm. things that are really important to remote workers. Have you seen or noticed more scientific based companies offering remote opportunities? Yeah, I mean, it's anecdotal, but I feel like I certainly have. because I think it is, it you know, it gives you access to that much wider pool of talent. So, and it gives people the opportunity to live where they want to and still contribute their scientific skill sets. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is, it is happening more frequently. It seems like tech is another kind of space, which that can kind of go hand in hand that's offering more remote work. And there's yeah. been a lot of research on this COVID um, moving of professionals of just being able to choose like where I want to live and have it more fit your lifestyle. Do you feel like, was that an influence for you at all? Like knowing that there were maybe more opportunities for you during this time? 
um, because of that kind of shift to more remote opportunities? Yeah, I think it gave me a lot more optimism, Mm -hmm. you know, than I would have felt otherwise. And um, yeah. I want to talk to you about the, you know, the, the personal impact that you have felt with breast cancer. Your, your mom was diagnosed last year with breast cancer while you're working in this space. Um, can you tell me about, you know, that experience and, um, how this has impacted or if it's impacted the work that you do? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, um, well, we found out my mom had breast cancer last October, Um, And I remember, you know, it was it felt shocking and ironic. But at the same time, you know, I knew the stats that, you know, one in eight women will you know, be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So it wasn't it shouldn't have been that shocking. But I think it was just it still felt very surreal. Um, But I think, you know, so she her diagnosis, fortunately, was really early stage. Um, and she had, based on the properties of her tumor, she had a less aggressive form of breast cancer, and she had a lot of treatment options available to her. Um, so her prognosis is really good. She's finished her radiation treatment um, a few weeks ago, and now she'll just be taking some hormone therapy pills for a while. So overall, everything is really good for now. Um, but as far as going through that experience with her, I just I feel like I could have never supported her in the way that I was able to if I hadn't been working at Komen. Um, I think, you know, one thing when people get this diagnosis, it's you get thrown into like a sea of percentages. And Mm. I think things feel very out of control trying to like digest it because it's a very complex diagnosis. There are lots of different types of breast cancer. You know, there's not um, it's not just one disease and there's different things based on your, you know, your tumor properties that mean different things for your prognosis and what treatment options you have. So it's a very difficult thing to navigate on your own. Um, so I think one thing that was really great was I was able to help provide her a lot more of that context about, um, you know, as far as like the percentages for for risk and different things. Um, you know, I could walk her through more of like where does this data come from and. Um, why is there so much, you know, confidence and like here are the decades of research that are supporting your treatment path. Um, so I think it was just really having the time to walk her through a lot of that when, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you just aren't able to get as much of that from a provider. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing, too, that I was really shocked by is how much she learned in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that just speaks to a lot of women, you know, when faced with something that's challenging, you just dive in and start taking action and doing research. Um, but it really helped me get a new appreciation for all of the educational materials that are out there for mm-hmm. patients um, to help empower them and, you know, give them a sense of control when it really feels like things are spinning out of control. So it helped her figure out, you know, what questions to ask, um, you know, and feel more in control of getting to have a say in her treatment path. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you're kind of um, a planner and you yeah. like to really think through things. Did that give you more of a sense of control that you felt like you educated to, to be that like patient advocate, really? Yeah, that's a great point. I think it did. And that was one thing I kept thinking, just how how difficult it would have been to support her if I didn't have a lot of you know, the access to the knowledge and the resources and, you know, a lot of the, um, the educational resources and support that Komen provides. 
Um, so, you know, it, I think that was something that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. So now with that diagnosis, does that put you at a higher risk for the cancer itself? Yeah, so it does. So I had done, um, I think one of the really important things we talk about at Komen is how important it is to know your risk. Um, and so that comes with understanding your family history. So having someone with breast cancer in your family can put you at higher risk. And um, there's, you know, other factors about your life that can um, put you at higher risk as well. And so, you know, m- my level of risk did change after her diagnosis. So that's something that, you know, I'm going to be doing soon is talking to my provider um, and seeing kind of which screening is right for me based on my age and um, and risk right now. So then like back in the office, how how have those experiences, have they changed the way that you view the work that you do every day? Because um, I imagine you don't deal directly with patients that often. And of course, this was a family situation. But how has that influenced the work? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It definitely has. Um, so it's interesting. We so we are unique in that we do work a lot with patients. Oh, okay. And so um, especially on the scientific side, we're very patient centric and we involve um, research advocates and the work oh, okay. we do and what we fund. Um, but even still, you know, one thing that I had heard a lot from them is how important quality of life is. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, with my mom's treatment, it was interesting because I just kind of assumed that she wouldn't necessarily question her treatment path that much. It was the standard of care. Um, but just watching her even struggle with, uh, you know, all the things that she wanted to do in her life and really critically thinking about how are these different treatments going to affect her? What side effects are they going to have? You know, how are they going to influence the things that she wants to do with the time that she has left? Mm. Um, so I think it just really brought home the point. Um, you know, one of our advocates says that, you know, all breast cancer patients want a long and a high quality life, but that means different things to different people. Um, so one of the things that Komen does is to really bring in that patient voice to the research process mm-hmm. to ensure that, um, you know, the research that scientists are doing is more, you know, can kind of maximize the benefit for patients and really kind of put a sense of urgency on the things that patients are needing um, from their care and treatment. Hmm. Is that something, because you manage um, a group of, of, of other PhD, you know, peers um, at Komen, is that something you talked about with them, that experience? Yeah, I did. We, um, you know, we share a lot of things and have a lot of meaningful relationships um, within our team, and that was something that I shared with them, and, you know, they were really supportive, but it was also just from that, you know, educational perspective of, like, here are all the things that I'm learning Um, And here are things that I'm looking at differently, you know, now that I am kind of getting this firsthand look at her experience and what she's going through. When we come back, Alex talks about moving to the United States when she was young and the impact it's had on her life. Support for this podcast is provided by American National Insurance. We'll be right back. Springfield Business Journal has been the business authority for over 40 years. 
SBJ strives to provide the most relevant, timely, and accurate business news you need to make important decisions. Locally owned and operated, Springfield Business Journal helps businesses market themselves to other businesses. Since 75% of the readers are the owner, GM, or VP at the business, SBJ helps your business influence decision makers when it matters most. If you need to raise your profile when businesses are considering your category of service, make sure you are differentiating yourself by using the Springfield Business Journal. So I wonder if you could tell me more about um, about your family and your life growing up, because I understand you um, immigrated to the United States from Russia when you were really young. Yeah. And I wonder how that experience has influenced your your view on the world and how, you know, your mom being from another country and raising you has influenced your view. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Yeah, so I immigrated here with my mom. Um, when I was six. So she was a single parent. um, And she corresponded um, with now my adopted father online. Mm. So it was like the very early online dating. Um, And so he came and visited us. um, And then we came here. Um, So it was quite a culture shock, you know, moving from a big city in Russia to I think straight to Willard, Missouri. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I still remember one of the really funny things. Um, So everyone, you know, waves and says hi, you know, in the community. And I remember my mom telling my dad, like, wow, you're so popular. Like, everybody knows you. (laughs) And it was just that Midwestern friendliness. Um, But as far as my, you know, view on the world, I think I was just always so grateful for the opportunities that I had because she was kind of, you know, brave enough to make that big move basically on her on her own at that time. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just made me, you know, very grateful for opportunities and the, the choices we get to make here. Mm-hmm. Are there ways that your mom has kept like her culture alive here in, in your upbringing? Yeah, so she, um, so her educational background was in linguistics. So whenever she came here, she actually taught Russian at Missouri State for a long time. Um, And then she is an amazing cook. And so I think that's one of the things I'm really grateful about with, you know, our opportunity to move back here. And um, we moved during the housing crisis. So we Mm -hmm. stayed with them um, for a while and then decided to build a house. But during that time, it was just so special to get to spend more time with her because whenever I moved out, I was, you know, younger and going to college. So I wasn't as interested in cooking and, you know, family recipes. But being back now, like it's given me a chance to really like find out like, oh, how do you make those, you know, Russian pancakes and the borscht. And Mm -hmm. so it's just been a great opportunity to um, to spend more time with her and and get kind of a lot more of those, you know, learn more about her life than I did whenever I was younger, I guess. Mm -hmm. With moving so young um, from just two very different cultures, the large, you know, city to small Willard, Missouri, um, like how do you identify yourself or label yourself? Do you think of yourself as like a Russian-American or or how do you view your own cultural identity? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the older I got, the more I identified with being a Midwestern, like more than a Russian-American. But I think that... Kind of the immigrantness, I guess, is something that I do feel like always stayed with me and just, um, you know, I think just being really grateful to get to be a part of 
like this country and this community. Hmm. We have kind of a, a decent Slavic population in the Ozarks. Is that something you guys connected with, like when you were growing up that you know of? Yeah, yeah. And I remember being surprised by how many, you know, different communities we had around here that were Russian. Um, and so my parents still have quite a few friends um, from, you know, from Ukraine and the Russian communities that they've stayed in touch with. So it was surprising, but it was also really nice to have, you know, other people to connect with. Hmm. Do you still have family in Russia that you connect with? Yeah, we still have family. Yeah. Um, we haven't been back just because, you know, with like visas and there's, I don't know, there's always a fear that something might happen and it can be difficult to come back uh, okay. um, more with my mom's citizenship than mine. So we haven't had a chance to visit, but we've stayed in touch and, um, you know, kept up with the family that is there. Yeah. So then now raising your own daughter, like, what do you think that you will take with you, like in her upbringing from your heritage? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think one of the things I'm focusing on most with her is just, you know, I want her to be resilient. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, if I can do anything, that would be what I would kind of want her to, to learn and, and take from kind of, you know, my experiences and my mom's experience. So, yeah. like, it's, you know, it's okay to make mistakes and fail and just to be resilient and to, you know, to make those next steps. Mm. Yeah. Is that a, do you feel like that is a characteristic of, like, the Russian people of, like, grit and perseverance and resilience? I th Yeah, I, I would say so. Huh. Um, and, you know, just seeing my mom with everything that she's, mm. you know, dealt with in her life, she's just always been very um, resilient and not shown a lot of vulnerability. Um, but, mm. yeah, she's been a very strong person in mm -hmm. my life. So then how how did all those experiences kind of impact then when you get into a leadership role? Um, because, you know, there's so many different ways to lead. Mm -hmm. Did you have a sense of what type of leader you wanted to be when you first, you know, started managing these programs at Komen? Um, and I guess let's talk about that journey of discovering <laughs> <laughs> what leadership, you know, meant to you. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I feel like you can read a lot of leadership books and, you know, listen to podcasts and things, but it's just so different whenever you're um, you're experiencing it and doing it. So I had experience leading more junior people and I had led volunteer groups. Um, but in this position, you know, I was now, you know, I was promoted to where I was now managing my peers mm -hmm. who are all very successful and highly independent contributors. Um, so it really was trying to figure out, you know, what is the right style of leadership that one is authentic to me because I had already been working with them, right? Like they knew me and I yeah. knew them. So it's not like I could show up as a different person. <laughs> so it was really trying to figure out that balance of, you know, how do I stay true to who I am and what my values are? And then at the same time, you know, giving them the support that they need. So I think in our situation, it's just, it's a very collaborative leadership style. So, you know, they have expertise in a lot of areas. So it's definitely, you know, letting them lead in their areas of expertise and then finding ways that we can support one another. Yeah. You mentioned kind of not being afraid to fail. So I'm yeah. curious if you if you had a moment that you felt like I missed the mark on that and and how did you learn from that experience? 
Yeah, I feel like before I had a very like low threshold, I think, for failure and like making mistakes. Mm. Um, And I think just because there's such a big learning curve whenever you're in a managerial position and, you know, now you're involved in a lot of different things. I felt like I was making a lot more mistakes. Um, But I think through that, it was also um, kind of trying to like give myself a little bit more grace and um, and recover from them more quickly. So like trying to think about, you know, how am I going to learn from this and apply it next time and and not, you know, dwell on uh, dwell on the mistakes as much, I guess. Mm hmm. Do you feel like there was any challenge with you um, having this leadership position being younger and being female as it relates to, you know, leading peers? I don't know if you're how you compare an age to the rest of your team. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think I was really fortunate. So one, we're all pretty similar, I think, in age and career. um, But Uh, you know, just really grateful to them, honestly, for giving me the chance and being really supportive. Like we've just all really um, uh, worked well together, kind of focusing on the mission and what we can achieve together as a team. Yeah. Yeah. How do you guys stay connected as a team with being from, you know, in different parts of the country and where, where are people located? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Across our team, we have quite a few folks in the Midwest in different Mm -hmm. spots, so like Tennessee and Ohio and Kentucky, so all over the place. Um, But yeah, so we we have just a lot of touch points. So it's very like friendly and open door where, you know, if anyone needs to touch base on something, like, you know, we're constantly in communication for different things. And then I think, too, just the... Um, making a really intentional effort to for us to all kind of know one another and build meaningful relationships. Um, I think that helps a lot too. I know it can be challenging, especially in remote work, for um, more of the people you don't work with every day because mm-hmm. I feel like you do have to put in a lot more of a deliberate effort to maintain relationships and you know reach out because you're not really running into them and catching up at the water cooler or whatever. So yeah. it is being more intentional about messaging them and like, you know, I, I thought of you the other day on this or scheduling a, a touch base meeting. Um, but it is I do think it's harder to kind of maintain relationships in the virtual world. Mm-hmm. How do you guys do like celebrations virtually? Because I've heard some really interesting <laughs> stories of different companies and virtual happy hours and, you know, dress up parties and different things. Like, what does that look like for you guys to celebrate together? Yeah, I I think we've done a variety of those. So we did like a Christmas party where people dressed up or um, did like scavenger hunts where everyone like left their computer and ran around looking for different things and, you know, played different like online games. So I think there's a lot of Um, kind of fun ways with technology that you can still do those fun things and talk about things that aren't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel like, honestly, so we see each other once or twice a year whenever we meet up at different conferences. But I feel like, you know, the first time that we all met in person, it was like, you know, nobody missed a beat. It was just like we'd all been hanging out for a long time and, you know, it wasn't awkward. So. Mm -hmm. Has um, becoming a mother impacted the way you view leadership or the the way you view work? Yeah, definitely. I think um, overall it's just 
I think you're kind of more ready to deal with chaos, I think. Okay. Like, I feel like nothing is as chaotic as toddler life. <laughs> so <laughs> it's almost like calmer sometimes um, dealing with things at work. But I think overall it is just more of um, being more flexible um, and adaptable and kind of managing expectations, I think, has also been a good lesson in parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's helped me lead. Um, and then also just having a better understanding of what, you know, people on the team are going through whenever they're having family issues or need, you know, need time for different things. So I think it also helps me be a lot more understanding of, about, mm-hmm. you know, what people have going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so moving to this area, um, what what did your husband find to do for work and how have you navigated that dynamic of like two working parents? Yeah. So his, um, you know, I felt like I was doing a little bit of a pivot, but he um, he was a boilermaker, so a welder for 15 years. And so he decided to completely switch industries when we moved down here. Um, so he pursued becoming a lineman. So mm-hmm. he's finishing up his lineman apprenticeship right now. So I think, you know, just from the perspective of um, seeing him going from like, you know, pretty high level leadership roles where we where he was to starting at the bottom of this new mm-hmm. trade, um, you know, just made me one like super proud and impressed that he was able to do that. Um, and also, you know, made me feel a lot less <laughs> concerned about, you know, the types of transitions I was making because I saw, mm-hmm. you know, how hard he worked and how well he, he did mm-hmm. his transition. But yeah, that's really brave to switch gears. Yeah. In your 30s, <laughs> it's a completely different industry. Yeah. Hmm. I'm yeah, very impressed <laughs> with yeah. what he's done. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, what is like building connections within the more of the community of Springfield look like for you without having kind of that natural plug in of an employer that's based in this area? Yeah, I think that's been um, it's been a little bit more challenging, I think, just because, you know, one, like being remote and then. To having a toddler, it is a little bit more difficult to get to all the networking events that I would like to get to. Um, but I think one thing I've found is that there are a lot of different opportunities to make connections and meet up with people. Like I found the Rosie events amazing. Um, and so I've been able to make, you know, quite a few very meaningful connections. Um, so it's kind of, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is just build relationships and, and friends with other businesswomen in the community. Um, I think one thing that actually was really helpful for me was this podcast Mm. because I got to not only hear from different women in the community, but each one of them, I felt like had a really cool history lesson about, you know, something about Springfield, um, or, Um, you know, things that were getting revitalized. So it gave me this, I guess, like more firsthand look of what was Mm -hmm. happening in the community, um, which I thought was really helpful. And then now whenever I encounter these different women in the community, you know, I can already have something that, you know, I want to chat with them about. So I think, you know, that's one thing that has been kind of cool. Yeah. Well, that's nice of you to say. I didn't ask you to say that, so that's good. Yeah. Yes, no, not paid. <laughs> um, what do you feel like are the, um, the the benefits of connecting within a community as a professional? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think 
right now one of the things that's important to me is, you know, we're raising our daughter here, so I want to feel like I'm contributing in some way. So I think that's, you know, one of the things that um, I'm doing now is figuring out, you know, where places that I might be able to to contribute or volunteer and feel like I'm giving back and kind of supporting where she's going to grow up. Mm-hmm. So within your career, um, are there other milestones that you want to accomplish, whether at Coleman or elsewhere? I'm curious within that, um, like PhD lane, are there things that, that you have that you're like, that's kind of like some, uh, like a bucket list item for a career that I want to check off? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it just it just kind of depends on the opportunities that arise. You know, I feel like what I'm getting to do now checks a lot of boxes as far as getting to, you know, work collaboratively and really move the scientific needle for, you know, in a way that's directly impacting people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, in the future, it's just more, you know, opportunities to continue collaborating and being innovative, I think, to to help, you know drive value and benefit for people it's like publishing more scientific like research and work with your name on it is that like a goal yeah it's not um yeah I feel like in academia that's definitely one of the Mm -hmm. like incentives and drivers I think what's neat about the nonprofit space is that um, there still are opportunities to publish but a lot of times they're more like white papers or different types of recommendations that you know might get incorporated more broadly. So, you know, it would be amazing to contribute to efforts like that that can have a big impact as well. Hmm. Yeah. So looking, you know, to the future, what are um, some other areas that your, your team's going to be focusing on or some other advancements in technology or data that you think are going to really influence this space? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, Komen is really interested in the big data space. So, you know, one thing that's become really clear over the last several decades is, you know, one, breast cancer isn't one disease. So it's a lot of diseases, but then it's also every person's breast cancer is unique and that's based on their biology and their lived experience. Um, So one thing that's really important is getting as much um, kind of different types of data from different people to help researchers better Um, basically to make better predictions about, you know, who might benefit from a certain treatment so that people are getting the best possible care for them as an individual, um, better ways to detect and diagnose breast cancer. Um, And, you know, right now, a lot of the research that's done is a smaller subset of patients that maybe don't represent, you know, all the people that are getting treated in the United States. Um, So one thing that Komen is doing is providing more opportunities for people with breast cancer to contribute to research. So one thing we hear from a lot of the patients that we interact with is that, you know, they really want to find ways to help, you know, drive research forward. Um, But there are a lot of barriers to participation in, you know, different studies and trials. Mm. Um, And so one of the things that Komen has done is created a breast cancer research registry where people can um, share their breast cancer data and researchers can use that to help drive discoveries faster Um, and kind of, you know, reducing those barriers to participation was something that was very front of mind. So just making really broad inclusion criteria. So basically anyone 
who's had a breast cancer hmm. diagnosis or has one um, can participate as long as they're over 18 in, in the U.S. So it really allows people to, you know, if they have an Internet connection um, and an interest in contributing to research, they can do it on their own time in a way that, you know, just isn't burdensome to them. And so the future is, you know, um, building out this registry and then doing our own research studies that will provide the greatest benefit to patients. Wow. Yeah. And so is it kind of like blind data? Like it doesn't have patient information attached to it? Yeah. So the data that researchers get is Mm de-identified. So all of the things that um, would be in the medical data that could be used to identify you are stripped. Um, And then there's a lot of security safeguards in place to protect data because, you know, again, as a patient-centric organization, that was one of the first things that, you know, we um, wanted to address and discuss with patients was that privacy and confidentiality of their information. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, theoretically, you could have tens of thousands of people in a study all self-reporting information, right? I mean, how many people do you anticipate might participate in this? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. The types of data that we're collecting right now is, um, one, getting people's electronic health data, so their electronic health records, and then there's a lot of surveys um, focused on, like, quality of life and social determinants of health. Mm. Um, And so it really depends, like, the number of people that you need for a study, you know, really depends on the research question. So some researchers might need a few hundred people, um, some might need a few thousand people. Yeah. It sounds like that could significantly impact health outcomes just to see more trends and to understand like risk factors. Yeah. So it's really important to have, um, you know, people that are representative of breast cancer in research, because whenever you're doing research on kind of subsets of populations, there's no guarantee that those discoveries will benefit people. Um, so they might, um, you know, you might get underestimates hmm. or kind of underperformance of certain tests and different groups of people or maybe more adverse effects. So in order for research to kind of more equitably benefit more people, it's really important that, you know, the research is diverse and representative. Hmm. Well, Alex, thank you so much for sharing about your work and your journey. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of No Ceiling at sbj.net forward slash no ceiling or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to SBJ's Tawny Wilson, who recorded and edited these shows with help from Caitlin Egger. American National is the show's presenting sponsor. I'm Christine Temple, and this is No Ceiling.